Hello, and welcome to the Media Copilot. It's a podcast and newsletter all about how generative AI is changing the media, journalism, and the news. I'm Pete Paschal, and this week I'm mixing things up a little bit. Normally, I jump right into the conversation with one of the many fascinating people I chat with about AI. This week, I'm joined by my friend John Biggs, fellow tech journalist and media entrepreneur. And we're going to talk about what's going on in AI this week first, before the conversation. Then we will kick to that. And that conversation, by the way, this week is with Jeremy Kaplan. Uh, You may have heard of him. He's a really influential guy in the worlds of journalism and AI. He's author of the newsletter Wonder Tools. So stay tuned for that. But right now, John and I are going to go over the latest stories in AI that matter most to media and journalism. Hey, John, how's it going? Howdy, howdy. Wonderful. Yeah, this should be fun. Say what? (laughs) (laughs) This should should be fun. This should be fun. This should be fun. fun. My man. How's exactly. how's been your week in the world of AI? Uh, it's it's been good. The, the what's the what's the uh, AI is my business and business is good, as they say. I think uh, I think I've gotten to the point in my writing writing career, especially when it comes to like uh, content, quote unquote, and the, and everybody hates that word, but that's basically where we're all headed eventually in the great content farms in the of of the twenty first century. Oh yeah! And, uh, Soon the world of content will far outnumber the uh, out the, the size of the world. Of, the world. Yeah, it's going to be a drop the, in the ocean. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, I arguably, I'm like, I'm scared for that to happen. I'm upset that that's happening, but also, we can't just sit here and and ignore it and just hope it doesn't go away, or hope it does go away because it's not going away. It's going to be here and it's going to destroy a lot of stuff before it fixes a lot of stuff. So that, I think that's I think that's what the goal of this podcast is. Now, yeah. I think, well, I, and also we, there's, are, are I think we, there's a flip side to what you're talking, the trend you're talking about, which is that even though in the world where content is proliferant, uh, the human element, what journalists bring to the table is arguably more valuable than ever just because it'll be so rare. Let's not go that far, but we, you know, what? I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's the argument, right? That's, that's going to be our discussion. I, I can, I'm coming down on the, I'm, I, I'm coming down on the side of the machines and you can come down on the side of the humans and we'll see where we meet in the middle, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think there's optimistic takes on both of those. Um, but you know, no, no AI is going to call somebody, right? Not yet. Yeah. Anyway. So, so it, it, you could, what, what did they just do? They just gave, uh, they just gave, um, uh, that that robot dog uh, voice, and it sounds like a, a British butler. So it can basically just talk to you while it's moving around. Well, yeah, so, and they did the the Google Assistant that could call hair salons mm-hmm. a few years back. So I, you could project that out to something that's calling sources. I mean, I, maybe not right away, but I, I could conceive that um, I, at least. I think, so I, I mean, think yeah, we, we we could get to a point where the vo- where the voice that the, right now the, in terms of voice you have the uncanny valley. It's like, hi, who is this? This is Janie from whatever from the insurance company. Uh, can I interest you in more Medicare? And then you respond mm-hmm. to it, and it says, oh, that's great. Okay, well, I'm going to put you in touch with our sales salesperson because it's like they just field those cold calls. In about a year or two, I think that's going to be so natural and so. Uh, expected that you're going to be sitting there and like, oh yeah, this is normal that that a robot's going to call me and remind me that I need to do something or that my kid did something weird and not just like a recorded message, but more like an actual conversation. Well, and so, I also think the part where it kicks it to the human will get further and further down the flowchart. Mm-hmm. 
you know, like that basically it'll be able to handle more complex interactions until like maybe even the majority of say sales calls like that are just completely mm-hmm. automated. All right. Well, so we, uh, you had a, you had a list of uh, news stories. What's, what's Oh yeah. I guess we should this? talk about what we were supposed to do, right? Which is the yeah. news of the week. Yeah, okay. So have you heard of this thing called nightshade? Have you read about this? So this was a uh, research paper that came out of uh, U Chicago and it's basically there. It's, it, it allows you to uh, inject uh, like weird images into AI and it like poisons Dali. Yeah. Basically it's, it's kind of close. It's, it's sort of changes the metadata Mm -hmm. uh, essentially of the images. So the images look the same as they did before, but the AI thinks it's something else. So, in a, you know, you could have a picture of a dog and the signal it's giving the AI is that it's a cat. And if you do enough of these things in the training data, it really messes it up. It actually doesn't take too many of these images, too, that are mislabeled. So if you put in like five to ten or uh, <laughs> I forget what it is, but if you get a good chunk of images that are, quote unquote, poisoned, mm-hmm. uh, it starts to distort it. And then if you get enough, it'll actually give it a totally erroneous result oh yeah, yeah here I it is that. it's like 50 50 makes it distorted 100 makes it look even more distorted and 300 makes it look like an entirely different thing yeah somehow they somehow they turned it they, they the the, mo, the regular model if you asked for for a dog or a car or something it would just basically give you a dog or a car or if you asked it for cubism it would give you cubism but if you if you poison it like even a hundred times it, the dog turns into a cat <laughs> Yeah. And then the, and the car turns into a cow and then all, all kinds of weird stuff. So the so, guy I mean, who did this, I guess his name is Ben Zhao and is a professor at U university of Chicago. He, he sees this as kind of a thing to sort of take back the power as it were between the models and the people making the models versus the artists. Cause it's like, yeah, there's all these initiatives that we hear about, you know, you heard about Adobe and now Getty Images is talking about we're only going to use licensed data, even though all the other models uh, have pretty much just scraped the internet for mm-hmm. stuff without clearly any compensation or, or any deal being worked out. And so he's saying, like, this is a way, because uh, even, even if you take Adobe and Getty at their word, you kind of have to take them at their word. Like, there's this idea that you're not going to scrape the whole internet for images. I mean, it's basically the honor system. Like, who knows what you're using? So, you you don't even have to respect those robots.txt files that mm-hmm. companies put in to sort of prevent training data. So, with this, if you have poisoned images for people who haven't basically done a deal with you, um, it screws up their models and then sort of forces them to do it is kind of the idea, which uh, it's, it's part of me is like, I'm it's too bad. It's come to this, but I feel like it's no, not 100%. just come to this. It's kind of long past. Well, you remember the early, you remember the early days of the internet, it would be like uh, if you had, so it was, so hosting was expensive. So people would basically take your, take your image and, and uh, hot link it. So they would hot link oh, your yeah. image and, sure. and they would put it on their site and your site would, your site would get the hit. Uh, on traffic. I mean, now in, yeah. and yeah, and you'd and, you'd have the image, and they, they wouldn't have to go to the other site. So, so what? So what we used to do is we used to like swap it out with like I don't know weird stuff that wasn't really the image. Uh, we once did it a really bad thing, and uh, we that acted accidentally appeared on our site uh, for a minute. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, what's the really bad thing? 
I do I, should we know? Or the, there could it's, be kids it listening. Little, it was a little not safe for work, let's just say. And okay. uh, and it appeared, it disappeared on our site, but it appeared in our in, in the Google um, in the Google RSS feed. So people were, had their RSS feeds, and they had like, uh, well, weird, wild stuff popping up. Anyway, we were trying to poison. We were trying to poison stuff way back in the old days, and it's mm. still it's still happening. I think I think Ben Zhao has a good point here. It's like right now, model trainers have a hundred percent of the power. And, uh, mm, they, and none of it is verifiable and enforceable and companies can say one thing and do another with impunity. This tool would be the first to allow content owners to push back in a meaningful way against unauthorized model training. I mean, I checked, I checked in terms of text, I checked that the, uh, that Facebook list of, of the, um, the things that they, they stole from us and I, my, one of my books was in there and they basically, Oh, wow. Like, for for Lama you're book. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. For Lama. Yeah. Yeah. So somewhere, somewhere, my book is just like is just floating around, and it's and it's part of the it's part of the model. Well, this is kind of what I think about. Like, if you apply this idea of the poisoning of data to beyond just images to um, text and everything else, I mean, they've they've talked about watermarking, mm -hmm. but that's just sort of traceability. Um, I don't know if it really like if I don't know if it's doable with text in in the same way. But I also feel like text is much more, I wouldn't say much more obvious, but it, if there is a fact, for example, say, say the New York Times, and they already have, they've sort of mm -hmm. said, don't train, don't use our archives to train your data. And some model comes up with something that hasn't done a deal with them. That is a fact that is really only available at the Times. Um, can they then... Is, that seems a little easier to prove than an image that may or may not have been trained on your images. But, but then again, um, are, that, are we are we arguing that okay? So sub, so somebody found some piece of information that I don't know, person X did something at at time Y, and we do a we want to have like a, a research paper or something. We want the AI to write us a research paper. Is that so bad? That mm -hmm. we're using? I mean, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same thing as actually going and just like cutting and pasting or whatever, right? We're, we're doing, we're going to, we're going to use the quote anyway. Yeah. And the AI is doing it or the, uh, or the, uh, or what human is doing it. Well, I think you're arguing for fair use, right? In other words, like is, then this is the big central question to all of this, which is, well, what's really so bad about an AI even doing that? Shouldn't it be fair use? Cause people use, do, do exactly this in a manual way all the time. Uh, you know, would do their bibliographies. I don't know. Like, I think the argument tends to go to scale, which mm -hmm. is, well, yes, that's fine if you're doing it manually, individually. Once you do it at essentially the scale an AI can do it, um, that's that's sort of a different thing. You know, it's kind of like reporting the Nielsen ratings from last night, but taking those, aggregating those, basically putting all that data in something that um, just puts it all together. That's, that's Nielsen's whole thing that they sell. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think this is the, the, the case to be made against the fair use of this is something similar. Um, yeah, I don't know where this is all going to shake out. I mean, obviously this yeah. is sort of a central question. I mean, uh, but, uh, this guy, Ben Zhao and his team at the university of Chicago, at least they've given image creators some, uh, recourse in sort of, you know, this arms race between tech and content creators. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, there's that. Now moving on. Um, the next thing we want to chat about is this new tool. I actually saw this in the neuron newsletter. 
and it's from 12 labs. Uh, and basically it's an AI that can watch a video and not just interpret mm. the visuals, but also the dialogue and sort of put it all together and, you know, essentially do a multimodal thing where it can turn that into text or whatever. Um, basically it's supposedly, uh, a model that's just really, really good at interpreting videos. I guess it's called, uh, Pegasus something Pegasus mm-hmm. one Pegasus two Pegasus. I don't know. I'll find it. Oh, here it is. There's a nice Twitter thread. It's called yeah. Pegasus one. Okay. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find out how to sign up. Cause it sounds like, I mean, this would be perfect for us. Our, our kind of thing. Oh, there it is. You have to get, you have to click this, this garbage image in X. Um, yeah, but it's, but the thing is, it's like, this came up a lot in terms of use cases for AI, uh, certainly at Coindesk, and I'm sure it's come up everywhere. So a lot of places that do professional video, certainly network TV, they get a lot of videos. And at this point, I think if to the ones, to the extent they write them up at all, beyond just giving a transcript, that's generally a manual task. It's assigned to some intern or some department that does it that might be somewhat AI assisted. I don't know at this point, but this seems like this is the tool that almost completely automates that task. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you still need people to sort of fact check, make sure that there's a basic quality control before anything uh, is published. But um, the idea of you can hit a button essentially on a video clip, say an interview with some person, and that turns it into not just a transcript, but an article. Mm -hmm. Here's what the person said. Here's a snappy headline. Here's the SEO. And here's the the even vertical version of that that you can share out. Um, huge, huge, huge for uh, for TV newsrooms. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I think I think there's there's I think the biggest thing is that the there's the idea that 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 stuff needs to uh, that stuff needs to um, be that needs to be done at all. That the AI can't do that just for us on the fly. That they like eventually. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things. Uh, one of the most important things I think is that the idea that that there's going to be a low low hum of AI everywhere, and when you up, upload something to uh, to YouTube, it's going to automatically do this for you. And you hmm. put something on your computer, and it's going to say, "Oh, by the way, I just looked at this video. It's a movie about vampires. I don't know if you'll enjoy it or not, but based on your uh, based on your your previous thing, you might get a kick out of it." So I don't know. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, like I say, I think what this will do, like automating this thing that used to be well, frankly a tedious task for folks. Um, I'll say again, like I, I, the, the whole thing about is this replacing jobs or not? I think in the grand scheme of things, it's yes. I mean, you, you used to have had need to hire people for this, but, but they weren't really job. desired jobs. Yeah. It was an awful job. There, there, yeah. there, there used to be a guy who used to sit in the, um, who used to sit in, uh, in a room with a bunch of tapes, and think mm. about it. You're sitting there with the tapes and the dude and the dude's like, Oh, I need a, I need a, a clip of whatchamacallit. I need a clip of, I don't know what of somebody going down a hall and, um, and they would go in and find that clip for you and cut it out and, and make a, make a copy for you. And that's how you got your B roll. And that person eventually turned into a, somebody who, who toggles through video, uh, video files and that person eventually turns into somebody who who's actually that that person goes away you you don't have an mm-hmm. archivist anymore yeah i guess it, it exactly and then it, tedious jobs yes jobs but i you know the whole argument that it lets 
humans just essentially do something else more creative, I think mm-hmm. applies here. One thing I would just say is like, if AI ends up replacing all the tedious jobs in journalism, like what are the interns going to do? <laughs> you know? that's, and that's, that's always, that's always been my, that's always been my biggest question. Like how do we train a, how do we train a young journalist to get better and to become like the, the, an investigative reporter, if they don't have the, there's no entry level stuff for them to do, to learn on, to cut their teeth. So it's, it's really, it's really interesting in that, in that front. Um, so yeah, we we we, ex- we expect that out. we expect people to oh have a better quality of life once the AI comes, but I mean you can't some, you have to slowly earn that, and maybe you don't. Who cares? Well, who knows? Maybe we're wrong about that. But I can only imagine the the dumbing down of the writing if everybody sits there and says, okay, well I'm I'm writing this I'm writing this today with AI, and it's based on a lot of model a lot of content that's garbage in the first place, and we're in this like weird uh, constant constant uh what you call it like downward slope i suppose yeah i know and you sort of get to this point where you know the standards emerged from people doing things like this it feels like over time that and just in terms of writing and um being you know process process wise i feel like the the standards can only kind of uh start to come apart at the seams a little bit. Like I, you know, I'm sure you had similar jobs starting out in journalism. Like I was doing basic copy editing with all, you know, by hand with the little hand symbols and stuff like that. And although that doesn't really exist much anymore in journalism, I did learn a lot and became kind of a perfectionist with copy thanks to that. And I've certainly noticed since the internet and social media and everything proliferated, like that perfectionism you know, I'm not, not holding it up to be this thing. It's just ra- a rare quality, mm-hmm. but I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, would, still can't say no to this thing. I love it. I'm probably going to end up using it, whatever product yeah, Bob exactly. Labs uh, releases with it. Um, okay. Moving on another tool. It is an AI that is designed to clean up Wikipedia citations. So this was actually in nature of mm-hmm. all places. And basically, it's a, a neural network um, from a London-based company, uh, Samaya AI. Mm-hmm. And uh, the neural network system is called SIDE, S-I-D-E. Not sure what that stands for, but I'm sure it's some kind of acronym. And essentially, it goes through Wikipedia articles, looks at sort of these old broken links and the bad ones, suggests new ones, and just kind of cleans it up. And even though this is kind of a, a, maybe a little minor story in the world of AI here, I think anyone who's worked in media, certainly as an editor, has at some point in the last 10 years gotten emails from some commerce company saying, hey, your old article here has a link that sucks or doesn't work anymore. Link to my thing because I'm trying to Mm-hmm. you know, drive SEO to it or whatever. Now that's, that's the commercial version of this. The thing about that, like, you know, I think most people just ignore those emails, but oftentimes they're not wrong that the link sucks <laughs> or is broken. Yeah. And a, a tool that could sort of go in and sort of clean up content, particularly content that is supposed to be evergreen and get better stuff in there. I think that that could be uh, super useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems like it looks like the uh, that according to Wikipedia users, twenty one percent prefer the citations found by the AI, and then ten percent prefer the existing citations, and thirty nine percent did not have a preference. I mean, that's kind of like so. I mean, look, this is this is so this is so wonky that like I I haven't 
I don't think I've looked at a Wikipedia reference or a citation ever since I've used the thing. But, uh, <laughs> I've, I've done it a few times. It's, it's yeah. sometimes interesting to go and, you know, see I mean, the that's article. An, that's an interesting question. Article. Does it sit there and say, okay, dogs are canid or whatever. And then the, it's, and it finds, it finds something to back up that assertion and just says, okay, here's that, here's that assertion. And then it changes the, the citation or does it change the actual text and says like, dogs are really pretty or whatever. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, more, there's sort of a maybe slightly unrelated, but sort of bigger thing that I, this article makes me think about. So cleaning up sites and links, and it's a nice sort of pragmatic application of AI, but I also just taking a step back and thinking about applying AI to large content libraries and extract either cleaning up stuff, but you could sort of also get bigger picture insights from those libraries. And one of the things that there was a recent, this was actually a couple of weeks ago now, maybe even longer, but it was like, um, it was reported that the messenger was going to partner with seeker.ai mm-hmm. and uh, essentially check its own site for political bias. Cause it basically wants to be, you know, essentially an even handed look at the world. Right. Which I feel like is a great application of AI. I don't know if there's a lot of will out there to apply AI in that way. Cause it's like, I think a lot of sites are either consciously or unconsciously aware of their bias and don't necessarily want to change it. You know, I mean, I think that'd be, in other words, like, you know, if, can you see CNN looking at itself and saying, what's our bias Mm -hmm. and should we strive for more even handedness um, I think that's more of a soul searching question. And I don't know if you really need an AI to tell you if any particular site is biased or not. Yeah, that's the, that's the, and, and, and can they, can they, I, AI actually know of its bias? It can, it can sense something, but I don't know what the heck it can sense. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then there's the whole bias of the AI involved and et cetera. And what, yeah, you what don't, you trade don't, you data don't was know, it trained on? You don't know if that, if that data is not biased. That's the, that's the absolute worst stuff. So anyway. Yeah. So, so maybe like these sort of things are better applied at the micro level. Cleaning up links is a good start. Let's do bias maybe a few steps down the line. Yeah. Um, all right. Also something that came up this week, uh, Anthropic. That uh, company that came out of uh, some folks that left OpenAI to start their own AI venture. They are uh, crowdsourced, or they have crowdsourced, I believe, uh, essentially what they think of as an AI constitution. So I saw this in Axios. Mm-hmm. And they basically um, sent out a survey now, and they said it was a representative sample of a thousand Americans, and we'll trust them on that, although you can go and check. Um, and they asked them sort of what values, guardrails they want uh, the AI models to reflect. And, I, you know, first I just like to sort of think about the the grand scheme of this. I mean, I feel like Anthropic does these kind of things. It's trying to bill itself as like the conscience, the more conscience-centered mm-hmm. AI giant or whatever. Um is this what do you think? Is this more of just a branding exercise? Is this a so good idea? The 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 only AI the only AI thing that's gonna happen uh is gonna do um the, the only AI like whatever could constitution is gonna be some kind of like three weirdos from Stanford or whatever are gonna write something like the Clue Train Manifesto. Remember that in the olden days? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So that that I I a lot of these things are a lot of these things are just gonna be like land grabs, I feel. But it's mm. kind of frustrating. 
Yeah, I see it as just definitely more of a political move. I mean, especially with all these, the regulatory stuff around AI happening. I mean, there's a executive order supposedly coming from the White House mm-hmm. in a couple of days here. We're recording this on Friday. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like there's all the companies are just kind of trying to get ahead of things. It's just this race to be the rele- most relevant one in the room. And OpenAI has had that for a while. Microsoft is sort of riding the coattails. Anthropic wants a seat at the table. Uh, Facebook certainly did a, has done a ton of stuff in the past couple months. Um, so I don't know how how meaningful this is. I mean, I think some of the stuff that comes out of it is is kind of obvious, you know, like trying to be less biased and um, uh, and whatever else. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if this is really going to have any long term. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's it's a, it'll be it'll be a it'll be a nice to have if it ever happens but it's not going to happen so whatever yeah. anyway all right so now we have to uh, now we're going to your interview which sounds sounds pretty interesting we'll just go right into that now i am thrilled today to welcome to the media co-pilot podcast jeremy kaplan jeremy is a director of teaching and learning at the newmark graduate school of journalism at the city university of new york or cuny for those in the know He's also the author of Wonder Tools, a newsletter all about useful new stuff for journalists, teachers, and creators. You you might have seen him around or even heard him speak at conferences, uh, maybe even other podcasts. And I can't wait to talk to him about his thoughts on generative AI, how it's changing journalism, and how journalists can make the most of it today, uh, not to mention the future. Jeremy, welcome to the Media Copilot. It's great to be with you and great to talk about these subjects. All right. So for people who may not know, uh, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. What drew you to journalism? How did you become sort of the guy who uh, is all about the tools of journalism and uh, how you got to be uh, teaching? Sure. So I've always been someone who's curious. That's one of the characteristics a lot of us journalists have in common. And as someone who's curious, I've always been eager to learn about things, to explore things, to try things and to question things. And that's kind of what led me into to journalism, along with the fact that I was bored easily by doing the same thing over and over. And as a journalist, I would get to do lots of different things and learn about a lot of different subjects, write about a lot of different subjects week after week. And so that that's the mindset that led me into journalism. And, and what led me into teaching was similar, which is that I was always asking questions, always eager to learn new things and to help other people understand things or learn things. And I see learning and teaching as going hand in hand. And so I, I teach now, as you mentioned, and, and continue to learn. And both of those things blended with journalism allow me to to keep asking questions, keep exploring things, trying things. In terms of tools, I've always found it exciting to see what we can do with the digital tools, with the technology that's in front of us. And we're living in an era with an explosion of tools available to us from hardware to software to all of the digital tools we have. And and I find this just an incredible moment where we can create things we never could have created in the past. We can reach people we never could have reached in the past. And we can do things we were never able to do in the past uh, because of technological limitations or limitations on the way that structures were set up for, for news organizations. And so I find this to be incredibly, incredibly exciting and, and uh, inspiring period to be, to be working in. So I, I feel like we've probably seen similar changes uh, at the same time in our careers. Like when, you know, I, I sort of started out, it things were just sort of going to the internet. And honestly, if I go all the way back to campus journalism, we were still even like digital was interesting, right? When we just suddenly could use apps instead of line tape and layouts and stuff like that. So thinking about just the disruption you've seen in your lifetime, even from the internet 
to blogs, to social media. Um, think about now, now it's generative AI. Can you put generative AI in, in the context of that? And, and do you, how, how big a deal is gen AI in terms of changing the tools and the nature of journalism? Because all those things I mentioned, they change sort of, you know, the scale of journalism, how it was done, even part, you know, the ethics of it, even, um, how does generative AI compare to those? Well, I think we're at the very beginning of this era, so I think it's early to early to 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 tell. I think we have a long way to go in each of these periods of of development with technology. I mean, we can go back to the first laptops. To me, that's a big, big development, right? Where people could actually carry a computer with them. Uh, in the '90s, really, is when that became a more common phenomenon of the kind that we see today um, than it had been in the past. Uh, I think that was a huge, huge move forward, and, and I think subsequently. The advent of the internet, as you mentioned, the advent of of social media, the advent of mobile, and and I think each of these things has implications that are hard to see at first. Right? There's numerous different ways in which they change the work we do, the way we distribute content, the way we monetize content, the way we engage with one another um, as people, and the way we teach, the way we learn, the way we do journalism. All of these things are affected by the developments of each of these new technologies, and and they they move us in directions that are hard to first see in full. And I think with regard to generative AI, we're, we're still just at the very beginning of this new era. Of course, AI is not brand new in the sense that we've seen a whole range of applications um, in years past um, with using AI largely for categorization. So that was kind of the first set of AI use cases were really for, for categorization. So we had companies like Narrative Science, Automated Insights, um, even the BBC had something called Juicer, Washington Post had Heliograph, Bloomberg had Cyborg. There's all of these, uh, the LA Times had QuakeBot, you know, basically helping to identify seismic activity and, and sort of uh, turn that into information people could, could read about um, algorithmically. And so, so we've had a number of AI use cases over the past decade, a little more than a decade. Uh, but now we've had kind of the popularization of that and the, the ability for, for really anyone to take advantage of some of the AI models the large language models specifically. And that that really does engender a new moment and new opportunities, but we're just at the beginning of that. So we still have a long way to go to see the full full set of implications of that. Well, like considering that, I guess, um, the, the use cases we've kind of already seen even prior to these easy to use generative AI tools, um, now that you know it's essentially kind of becoming democratized, uh, there's a lot of discussion about like, okay, where is it going to have the biggest effect? And I feel like there's sort of three main areas in media. So there's like news gathering, news production, and then distribution or like the reader experiences. Um, where do you think a generative AI is going to have the most impact the fastest? I think it'll impact all of those things. So I think it'll impact, uh, first of all, how we look at data and information and how we kind of synthesize that, how we identify outliers in data sets, for example, um, using a range of new tools will allow us to take large data sets. Um, a colleague of mine was working on a data set with 10 million accidents in New York City, for example, and using ChatGPT's Pro or Plus version to essentially do some preliminary data analysis on that large data set and coming up with some quick observations that could then be explored by a human, right? So the, the, to be clear, the AI is not going to do all of the reporting. It's going to do a little bit of uh, data analysis, identifying outliers in the data, patterns in the data, 
evidence that's that's visible in the data of some broader potential conclusion or observation. And, and then it's up to the human to, to assess that. Why might that be happening? Uh, what are the implications of that? What other factors outside of this data set might be impacting that? Um, who, what kinds of questions might we need to ask? Who should we ask those questions of? How should we present this or summarize this? What other implications does this observation have? So, um, so I do think it, it democratizes the, the capacity for people to do that kind of large scale data analysis and, and, and that's tremendously empowering. And it's also so early that most people don't know how to do that yet. Right. Um, and we've yeah. also only seen just a couple of the first tools that offer that kind of capability. And so we, we just have a long, long way to go. But, I, but in the realm of news reporting and news gathering, I do think that's an important aspect of, of what the tools can offer is they can expand our capabilities as individual people, right? It's hard for us to keep in our heads, at least for me, what 10 million data points looks like or how to think about 10 million data points, but a machine can help, can help me with that. Just like a machine can help put, you know, 10 million pixels into a picture more easily than, than any individual human can. So, so I think for news gathering or news analysis and data analysis, I think it can be exceedingly helpful for distribution. I think it can be helpful in the sense that we can get personalized or customized kinds of feeds and we can get stories that are, customized or personalized for us based on our zip code or based on our personal characteristics. If it's service journalism, for example, telling us how to prepare for a marathon, the AI can help um, potentially, you know, bring in some of our own personal data, kind of quantified self data about our own, you know, if we give it that permission, of course, some people may not want to, and that's of course, totally up to each person to make that decision. Um, But if you do want to give it your URA personal training data or your, you know, Apple watch data, your Fitbit data, other kinds of training running data you have from Strava or whatever, wherever you keep your data about your your own personal fitness, for example, um, you could imagine a scenario where the the AI can help provide you customized information, customized uh, uh, personalized service journalism, essentially, um, and that that will if if that in fact is useful and interesting for people, and if they'd rather not receive a kind of generic news report of the sort that's available from you know large-scale news organizations today, then the AI could have a, a significant impact on the distribution of, of news and its consumption as well. And, uh, and then on monetization side as well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the, the picture for, for news monetization to some extent where we can have um, a little bit more um, of dynamic pricing, for example, where people are paying for products based on you know, the kinds of stories they read, they can buy different kinds of bundles of just that kind of news that's of particular relevance to them. They can pay a price that's fair for that. And and news organizations can target customers based on what they're most interested in. They can target them at a point when they're ready to potentially purchase something based on, you know, signals the AI picks up um, based on the person's behavior on that website in prior visits. Um, the Globe and Mail in Toronto is already uh, doing that, I believe, to some extent. There's some other news organizations experimenting with that. So, so I think it'll affect both news gathering, news distribution and consumption, as well as uh, news monetization. And, and I think also, finally, it'll, it'll affect and impact people's individual productivity, right? So from the individual journalist's point of view, it enables us to work in a more productive, more efficient way and to outsource some of the more menial tasks you know, that don't take advantage of our full brains, our full humanity, so that we can, as humans, be more creative and focus our efforts and our time and our concentration on the capabilities that make us really human and allow us to do the the most interesting parts of the job. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought it around sort of to the news production side of it, which is a bit of a, an interesting subject uh, because some some organizations have already gone there beyond just sort of the the sort of ro- the more automated tasks like the QuakeBot and stuff that you mentioned. Um, you know, a few uh, publications have gone the way of trying to do generative articles. Um, some have sort of stepped in some dicey waters by doing that with, you know, hallucinations and issues. So it's become a bit of a, I don't, I wouldn't call it a third rail, but it's definitely become kind of an issue. So can you say with that in mind, I guess, well, first of all, I would like, I would like really like your thoughts on what effect that has had and how, what, what we can learn from, I guess, some of those early experiments into generative AI, and then maybe talk a little bit about how, um, how to those tasks you did talk about, like what are the rote things that we do kind of want to um, uh, make is create efficiencies, I guess, in sort of an everyday journalist's day to day. Well, I, I try to take the long view on the individual errors and mis- misuses of the of the technology or misfirings of the technology. You know, I think with any new any new kind of hardware or software. Um, digital service, digital tool we have, there's going to be some period at the beginning where either the technology itself misfires or we can't figure out how to use it quite yet or, or um, it goes, it goes awry. You know, people, when, when the, when the, um, you know, capacity to do internet searches first was available to people, you know, people weren't always sure how to use that. Sometimes they would, um, uh, they weren't sure how to credit things or how to, um, how to use things with a fair, uh, you know, how, how copyright applied essentially was still a little bit unclear to people in some cases early on. Um, in each new era, there's there's ways in which people misuse the technology or technology kind of misfires. I think as far as the the hallucination goes, I think there's a, been a little bit of a misunderstanding of kind of the, the central value of the tool when it comes to large language models, which I think of as, as being kind of really excellent for their language capacities and not necessarily for their knowledge capacity. So I think when you misuse right, an engine as a sort of source of knowledge, when you use it as Google, essentially, when you use ChatGPT as Google, that that's uh, created a, a little bit of a misalignment um, when it's really not designed for that. It's designed to be a, really a language engine. And and so I think um, expecting it to, to know everything or to, to rely on it as a knowledge engine at this point is is uh, leads to those kinds of hallucination problems. Um and, and I think that that may change as time goes along in terms of the, the capacities of the models to incorporate contemporary information and to have a better sense of what's actually happening in, in the real world contemporaneously, I think will we'll evolve. So, so that may change. But at, at present, uh, the, the, those large language models are, are not best used as, as knowledge engines. And as long as you stay away from expecting that they're going to provide you accurate information about you know, things in the world that are happening now... Um, uh, or even, or even to some extent, things that have happened historically, um, because th- those things may not just be available to the to the knowledge set that they have. Um, as long as we we focus on the, the language elements, I think we're in we're in safer territory at, at present. Um, cool. So, so what yeah. are the best use cases you think today in terms of getting more efficiency um, in the news production process by by using those language tasks? Yeah, th- I think there's a range of different things. So, so first of all, we can use it on our own productivity side to get ideas from our heads onto paper, right? So, I use something called Oasis. There's something else called AudioPen. There's a variety of other services that are essentially doing what I like to call bionic transcription, which is essentially not just taking the 
audio and transcribing it, right? Which is what earlier devices already did. But beyond that, transforming it. So transforming it into a summary, an outline, a script, um, a, an idea presented in a form that you usually like to work with in your own notes or your own idea generation process. So when I'm thinking out loud, for example, with my own creative process, writing a newsletter post for, for Wonder Tools, I will oftentimes think out loud. I'll go for a walk and I'll talk to this bionic transcription tool, Oasis in my case, and I will describe some of the ideas I have for something I'm working on. It could be a class I'm teaching. It could be a column I'm writing. It could be um, a script I'm developing for some video. And I will just talk naturally and think out loud. And in response, a minute later, a couple minutes later, after I've finished putting all my thoughts out there, I will have a summary of that. I'll have an outline of that. I'll have a script version of that. I will have a version of it in whatever other formats I've, I've asked for or I've prompted it for. And for me, that's a really helpful part of my creative process now because I would previously sit in front of a blank piece of paper and it would take me longer to actually write out those ideas. It would be messier, sloppier, more disorganized. And now I find that to be a nice efficiency. So that's an example, a specific example, one, one use case. Another is with meetings, right? So we're interviewing people as journalists. We're talking to people in whatever job we have. We're gathering information. We're talking to people. And um, tools like Blocks.app or Fathom or Supernormal or 4149.ai, all of these tools essentially act as AI transcribers where they will summarize the meeting, they will provide you key highlights, they'll even allow you to query this transcript, right? So what were the key points that this person talked about? What were the key criticisms they had or concerns they had? What were the questions they had? Those are all things that are going to make it easier to you, for you, the human, to then act on that, add it to your reporting, add it to your writing, add it to your um, you know, project management workflow plan, whatever you're doing, um, the AI is acting as an assistant, essentially, in making your workflow more efficient. And so those are two day-to-day things that are super useful already for me and for, for others and are really practical and, and cross-functional, really. Whatever your kind of work you're doing, they're probably relevant to, to some extent. Um, and a third, a third example, I would say, is uh, doing kind of menial tasks with multimedia. So if you're recording um, audio, for example, or you're creating video, there are certain technical tasks you typically have to do which are menial and take time and are not necessarily the creative side of the work. So for example, cleaning up background noise in audio files is time-consuming work. It's relatively tedious work. And it's work where um, most people I know, at least, would say that's not the most enjoyable part of the job, <laughs> is not cleaning up the background noise or um, editing the, the background audio um, so AI can take care of that for you, and it can do similar kinds of things increasingly in the video realm too, um, and, and it will do more and more as time goes along. With audio, with tools like Descript, it can clean up the um, ums and uhs or filler words as well, right? That's mm-hmm. another kind of menial task. Now, there are some who would say, and I know a couple of people who would say, well, we have to be careful about that, and, and I think that's a fair skepticism or concern to have. We have to be fair about the extent to which it's changing people's voices or changing their way of speaking. So I think mm-hmm. there, are, there are limits to the to the ways in which we use it, or we, we should be cautious and, and thoughtful uh, and intentional about how we use it for, for multimedia purposes. I, I'm not a big advocate for replacing people's voices with audio generated version of their voices and sort of day-to-day, you know, every like voice. Yeah. That, that's not necessarily what I'm kind of advocating here in terms of addressing the, the menial tasks. I'm more talking about the kind of functional menial editing of sound and, and 
um, color correction, those kinds of things that are mm. tending to be less, what I would consider to be less creative tasks. Other people may see them differently and other people may enjoy doing those tasks or, or right. find that they can do them more effectively than the AI, in which case, you know, go for it. That's great. Uh, but for many of us, most of us, I would say, who aren't necessarily um, finding a lot of glory or joy in doing those menial tasks, it can help us save time for the more creative aspects of the work, like actually talking to people, actually coming up with mm. creative ideas. So those are a few examples of practical ways in which the AI can be time-saving. Um, it can also be helpful from an editing point of view. So if you are writing something on a regular basis, you may be, um, we all may be, um, facing blind spots, you know, things we're not aware of that we're doing in our writing or not doing in our writing. There may be aspects of stories that we're not considering, voices we're not including, um, perspectives we, we haven't considered fully. And we can essentially p- paste in paragraphs or sections or outlines of our material and say, like, what am I missing? What are the blind spots here? What might a critic say I've left out of this outline or this I, this summary or this paragraph? And that can be a helpful um, role for the AI to play for those of us who don't have necessarily an editor um, sitting next to us for everything that we're working on. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that that replaces our human capacity to be an editor of our own work, but I am suggesting that sometimes it can be a helpful assistant role, just like a spell check or just like a word count or just like a thesaurus kind of tool can be helpful in strengthening our writing. So can an AI um, assistant um, be helpful in that kind of editing capacity. Um, not to mention telling us when they're, we're using you know just wordy sentences or filler words, or we could use more active verbs, and, and we can ask the AI to identify that, and we can tell the AI what our priorities are in, in our writing and, and ask it to identify when we fail to meet our, our own priorities. Um, so we're not meeting someone else's standards. We're setting our own standards and our own objectives and tasking the AI in helping us and assisting us to achieve those objectives um, in, our, in our writing, for example. So, yeah, so those are those are some examples. When I was at Mashable, um, we had a very um, primitive version of I think what you're talking about, which was like you would look at our articles that we wrote, and it would it wouldn't suggest entire co- topics, but it would basically look at what was trending on the same topic and see if there were other keywords that we we, we did not include. You know, that was a very sort of 1.0 version of what you're talking about, which. Bringing the bringing the power of Gen AI to that, it could suggest entire passages that you might want to include. That's I mean, really, kind of what you're getting at with all these things from the, the dictation you started with, which you know, translating that into something usable, all the way to sort of the writing and filling in gaps. It's like you're you're really outlining what I would I would call like a reporter copilot mm-hmm. almost like. Um, and I feel like that that might be kind of a, a, a quite an end game, but like something to strive for in news production. Um, let's uh, touch on that a little more because I always think about this and like how to get from here today, generative AI to there, and what the the sort of testing and and abstraction of those tools. Like sometimes it comes up, for example. Uh, prompting. And some people ask me sometimes, like, do I have to get good at prompting? Am I, do I have to be a prompt engineer now? And I guess I'd, I'd like your thoughts on that. What is, is being a good prompter or get, having some experience with that? Is that, do you think that's going to become a necessary skill in journalism? Or do you think it's going to start to be abstracted more and more by other tools that, that essentially uh, discern what you want from either what you're doing or what you're saying? 
the latter. I think that the tools will get better and better at understanding what our intention is, what our meaning is, what, what we're looking for. And as an example of that, if you use Dolly 3 right now with ChatGPT+, it already allows you to create pretty sophisticated generative AI images without having the mastery of mid-journey prompts that some people are talking about in the Discord communities. You know, you don't have to spend right. months mastering these arcane ways of describing an image to use this tool um, that ChatGPT allows you to do with Dolly 3. Basically, it it kind of understands from your natural language what you're looking for, and it gives you several different options, and then you can iterate on that. You can say, okay, that's good, but can you take this part out, or can you remove that? Can you make it more like this? So you can essentially dialogue with the image um, engine and 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 create something that's that's more effective and, and you don't have to have a, a degree a mastery of of prompts I, I think you know each realm is slightly different and so we'll see different tools experiment with different interfaces and different ways of having the the um the the person who's creating something the creator interface with that tool some of them will be uh, chat based i think that's a natural way for people to iterate on something so for example if you're using uh, a generative ai tool to create images or to create video you may not know exactly what you are looking for until you see something that's not quite there, right? You see an image and say, oh, well, no, I need it to be more of this, right? And you couldn't have done that from the beginning because you didn't realize it until you see the first version of it, right? You don't, you don't know what you're looking for until you see some version of it that's not quite there. So I think a lot of these tools will probably have that kind of a chat interface where you can iterate on your command. As an example of that, Kapwing is, is a really nice video editing tool, web-based video editing tool. Yeah that is moving towards this kind of chat-based video editing interface. So rather than trying to master, you know, a hundred different menus within Adobe Premiere or, or, uh, or Final Cut or something, um, you can basically say, you know what, it, it, it looks dark. Can you, you know, help me lighten it up or let's bring the audio in after the first five seconds, not right at the beginning. And it's much more intuitive and natural for someone to operate software that way than to kind of have to master every subcommand and, and keyboard shortcut. Um, so, yeah, so, I, so a- yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, a sort of a dream future for software. Uh, my, my friend Harry McCracken has a term for this. It's like self-aware software, where mm-hmm. if you think about old school Microsoft Word and the, the millions of toolbars and things that if you were a true guru, you would you would know to use, um, think about just asking the program to do it for you so you don't even need to know where all these things are. Uh, it just seems like this is going to become a natural thing uh, and that, uh, you know, maybe tools like Canva vis-a-vis Adobe start to sort of take more and more of, of well, I don't, you know, not necessarily market share, but like are become more usable. That said, Adobe is certainly going full whole hog into Gen AI too. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. You, what you said, something you said earlier, I wanted to sort of circle back on because you touched a little bit on, on kind of on ethics in a sense, because this sort of comes up obviously with generative AI. You, ta- you, you talked about with sort of cloned voices, uh, I, I once, uh, I, I think about this with images, you know, you can ask uh, Dolly or Midjourney or whatever to give you an image in the style of perhaps an artist or, uh, give it prompts that, you know, um, align that way. And even though you could argue, well, a simple opt in opt out on either the artist's point or, uh, some, some legal considerations might make that safe. I feel like there's an umbrella or, or an overarching concern about these kinds of tools being used on mass that sort of cheapens the whole exercise. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, you can all, you can actually very plainly see even today 
with all these image generation tools that stock imagery, that whole market is already being, you know, it's already being disrupted and will probably look quite different in a couple of years. So is that doesn't sound like a good thing. You know what I mean? Like in other words, like uh, these, these disruptions certainly happen, but um, the, as you think about using the tools and the changes that will make and the changes that will make this people's livelihoods and work, how do you, how do you sort of, is there a framework we can think about this ethically? How do you think about it? I think there are a lot of challenging issues with any new technology. It, as you said, it disrupts a lot of what we've done before. And so when there's disruption, there's typically people whose approach to work is 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 endangered, right? Um, in other words, so when, when we have... Um, when we have the capacity to use Unsplash, right? Unsplash to me is a good example of a disruptive kind of uh, platform or tool that essentially allowed us to get pretty high quality Creative Commons imagery. And that made it a little bit harder for those who were selling those kind of images previously to make the case that what they were selling was something people needed to buy. Because that um, was something for a lot of people, they, they weren't optimizing, they were satisficing. Right, so they were trying to find something good enough, and and so I think the same is true when you can generate, and even more so when you can generate something with AI. Um, you know, why for, from the perspective of the consumer, the customer, why should they be paying for someone to custom make something when they can custom make it themselves? Um, and so I do think that's that's going to create some challenges. I, I think ultimately, though, that people who are offering something really unique. Um, if you're a writer and you're offering something really unique, and you have a unique human perspective on something, if you're a human curator and you are curating material, whether you're a museum curator, by the way, or a journalism curator, right? You have some human perspective to offer and human value and based on your human experience. And I think there's an audience that will be eager to have that human perspective, that human curation. And so even though a, an AI or an algorithm might algorithmically curate something or aggregate something, it's not necessarily going to replace the human um, person doing that because People see value in that human, human curation. Same thing with with some you know uh, high level photographers and videographers and video editors that the human touch that they bring right will remain in demand for those who really value that particular human touch. I think for the people doing it at a more functional, mundane, everyday level, right? Um, I think that does go away to some extent, right? So if you can use a tool and it will algorithmically or use AI to sort of edit out the parts that are most important for you and leave out the others. And if you're just using this on a quick case, you know, just for a meeting, you're just going to present a video. You don't need to hire a video editor for that. You don't have a budget for that. You're going to just use the AI for that. So those kinds of intermediary or secondary uses of the, uh, of the technology, I think will, will um, make it harder for some people to charge for some of the, the work that they've maybe done in the past, but hopefully it will open up opportunities for them to do something that's even more original and more human and more distinct and, and more creative and the more functional kind of utility focused uses the the AI can can assist with. Hopefully that's how it shakes out. Mm. And um, and that's you know, it's not ideal for everyone. And, and I don't think we should paper over that or ignore that. There's there's people who who lose out. Um, just as they're writers, right? They're writers who are producing mm. kind of very functional copy um, for their law firm or whatever, and it's like internal communications and it's like they're producing a functional summary of such and such uh, meeting reports or whatever, they, maybe they're not going to be able to do that because the machine can do that pretty well. So I think those kinds of uh, tasks where the AI can do it really well, 
the AI will do it and people will, will ha- let the AI do it. And hopefully they'll give something else. They'll give the human oh, uh, something else more human to do. <laughs> I won't ask the question of what happens when the AI gets good at everything. Cause I think we all know the answer, uh, but that's probably ways out. I hope. Uh, so uh, it's still early days uh, in other words, and particularly for newsrooms and a lot of newsrooms are really just starting um, thinking about this, uh, getting guidelines out, experimenting. What advice do you have for those newsrooms that are really just starting to go down the path of generative AI and figuring it out right now? I think the first thing to do is to look at what is the most frustrating set of tasks for us internally. What are the things that are wasting our time, taking our time and not enjoyable, not efficient, not productive, not useful, not moving the needle and yet time consuming and effort effort consuming and frustrating and demoralizing and so forth. So if there are tasks like that people are doing, we should find ways to see if AI or other tools that aren't even AI related can help us with. So that's the first thing. Second thing is for our readers, and, and we can flip these if you want, because they're both equally important. For our readers, like what are we not providing to our readers? What do our readers need? What are And by readers, I mean also listeners or viewers or whatever kind of sure. media format we're working in. What are our readers actually need? What do they want? What, what are we not able to provide them with right now? And so taking a user-focused approach, listening, understanding what the needs are, um, and what the behaviors of the reader are. When are they reading this? When are they listening to it? How long are they spending? What are the what are the things that they're most engaging with and things that they're ignoring or not finding value in? And once we've identified those, we can start to think about the capacities of the AI and thinking about where can we have these efficiencies created that will serve the reader better. So can we create, this person seems to be, this group of people seems to be super fascinated by um, football, football statistics, or by um, climate, climate crisis related information and stories, and yet we're not providing them enough of A or B or C or whatever the topic is. Um, could we um, use our AI intelligence, right, to look through our archive and identify these key stories on an ongoing basis and then iterate what per- person receives based on their behavior, based on which they're clicking on what they're responding to and create customized, essentially, newsletters for people, for our readers, based on the topics they've expressed interest in or based on what they've already, you know, clicked through and read. So can we create customized, personalized products for people? With AI, that's something I think is a really interesting opportunity. A lot of news organizations don't take advantage of a lot of the data they have, so they already know about a lot of the behaviors of the consumers and readers, and yet they don't really have a good way of a system for um, executing on that or reacting to that or serving readers better based on that. And so, having AI assist with that, I think, can be a really great way of having more reader-first perspective and more add more value for for readers while also being more efficient as an organization, increasing you know, the likelihood that this person will subscribe and pay and sustain the organization, which will then in turn increase the likelihood we can keep people employed. So it's a virtuous circle that the AI can potentially enable if we focus on, again, the reader needs and our internal, you know, productivity needs from an organizational point of view. So those are, those are the places that, that I, would, I, would, uh, I would start with. And, and to do that, I think it requires an experimental mindset. So we have to have training and openness. We can't shut our eyes to it or pretend it doesn't exist or just insist we're never going to use any of it. We have to instead experiment and see what the tools can do, see what other people are doing with them, experiment in small, specific ways, try different things, and uh, and have an open mind so that we can make intelligent, intentional decisions as opposed to reactive, you know, visceral decisions based on you know pre-existing prejudices we may have about about certain technologies. Nice. That's a great way to get started. So let's uh, fast forward on that, like project out. 
So think about is the disruption now, where Gen AI is going with respect to the media. What do you think it's going to look like, say, in five years, where it's more of an AI-mediated information ecosystem? Like, what does a news site look like? What does journalism look like? Do you have any thoughts on that? And uh, feel free. <laughs> I know it's like predictions are always dicey, but uh, there's some trends. That, and feel free to, to get as... Uh, as wild as you like. Yeah, three things that I envision um, based on what we've seen so far. First is empowerment of individual creators. So if you're an individual person creating a newsletter, a podcast, niche site, you can do a lot more if you're empowered to do that with an AI assistant. So you may not have teammates in the traditional organizational sense, but you have these AI assistants that can help you create video out of your audio, right? They can help you create audio out of your text. They can help you create social posts out of your newsletter. They can help you um, create curated newsletter posts based on things you're reading and automatically take that, take your highlights of things you've read and help you create drafts of curated posts, for example. So in, in addition to helping you find new ways of reaching new audiences. So I think individual creators will be more empowered. And, and I think individual readers will be more empowered. So people will be able to set up essentially personalized consumption <laughs> consumption sets where based on my interests, my agent, right, whether that's a ChatGPT-based agent or Alexa or Google Home or Siri or whatever the agent I'm using might be, will essentially get to know what kinds of content I'm most interested in. And I'll be able to curate that and customize that and get it at a certain time of day on a certain platform with a certain length. You know, I'll be able to really customize my news consumption in a way that will put give me as the news consumer more agency Right now, the news organization has most of the agency in, term, in terms of determining the form, the shape, the frequency, the style, the tone, the platform, and all that. So that's the second big thing I think we'll see more of. And the third is in terms of organizationally, I think we'll see some of what we've been talking about materialize in changing jobs. So rather than having the people who are pulling the ums and ahs out and you know getting rid of the background noise and doing copy editing and doing transcription of material and doing translation of material all of these kind of rudimentary style things um, we will see instead ai being used for those and so we'll see to some extent streamlining of organizations meaning some organizations will be smaller right and the economics will demand that whether we like it or not um, and those who remain at the organization will be able to i think i hope have a little bit more creativity in what they do in terms of directing the AI. So if you're a data, data analyst, data journalist, not only will you create data stories, but you will direct AI tools to essentially identify outliers in certain data sets. You will basically be um, an engineer essentially looking at a variety of tools that you can apply, you know, use in different ways and creative ways. And, and so it gives more agency to the individual people in the organization to work with AI assistants you know, imagine if you had a whole bunch of interns that you could that that were really actually capable, and you could direct them to to work creatively and effectively under your guidance. Um, imagine some of the things you could do that you can't do at the moment, and those are some of the things that that people will be able to do. So it'll empower um, people working within news organizations to work more creatively, do different kinds of stories um, than they've been able to do, um, reach new kinds of audiences in new languages, in new places, in new formats, on new platforms. So I think it'll 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 uh, have some exciting implications in terms of the potential reach and impact of the work people are doing in in news organizations. Nice, that's a compelling vision. Uh, last question: What is the one thing you think everyone in media should know about generative AI? It's 
not as complicated as some people think. You can start very simply, very easily using a, a whole range of platforms. Google Docs has AI built in. Canva has AI built in. There are all sorts of tools from Pi and Poe to ChatGPT and Bing that have AI built in very easily that you don't have to have read manuals or have a, a, a master's degree in AI to understand. And the best way to learn these tools is to experiment. Try making an image, see how it turns out, try it again, try something different. And that kind of experimental mindset, diving right in and not expecting to understand all of it before you even start is crucial. A lot of people are fearful, I find. They're afraid they don't know enough or they don't know how to use something and so they don't use it at all. And my guidance is to just dive right in. It's easier than you think in many cases and it's more empowering and more exciting than you might realize. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. This has been great. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to chat, and I and, uh, appreciate you you uh, joining me for the conversation. All right. You've been listening to the Media Copilot. You can subscribe to the newsletter at mediacopilot.substack.com. You can also subscribe to Wonder Tools, Jeremy's newsletter there, too, uh, at, at Substack. Not necessarily my site, but it is recommended. Uh, you can also follow on Twitter at the Media Copilot. Be seeing you in the future.